Meter. And we want to welcome Aaron Stark to the show. Aaron, how the heck are you? I'm doing pretty great today. How are you today? We're doing great. And I can't thank you enough for being on the show and uh, making some time for us. I know you're a pretty busy man. <laughs> yeah, it's been a, been a pretty busy week. I, I just got uh, got done with two separate trips just in the last seven days. So, Oh, my goodness gracious. That's great. Well, I've got to tell the audience about how how we came into contact. Uh, every when, when I'm working, I usually watch uh, watch TED Talks uh, on YouTube, and Aaron's came across, <laughs> and it was one of those. You know, I, I enjoy most of the ones that I hear, but this one struck me. Um, the name of the TED Talk was "I Was Almost a School Shooter." Did I get that right? And I was so blown away that I put away the work that I was working on. And I just, I was mesmerized. It was only about nine minutes, but in those nine minutes, I learned more about uh, not only Aaron, but just the, uh, just the state of, of bullying of mental health and so on and so forth and its impact and was so blown away, um, Aaron. I mean, I had to reach out to you, right? <laughs> Thank I, you. I, I really appreciate that. it. I yeah. am. I am so stoked about this interview because this is one of those things where it's something from the past jumps out at you and becomes personal. And what I mean by, and we'll get into that more often. But when when Marie said, "Hey, have you seen this TED Talk?" I was like, "Yes." <laughs> that is something I saw a long time ago and it has such a big impact on me. So I am truly honored to be able to speak to you today, Aaron. There's well, no... thank you very much. And Aaron, but, well, I'll give you I'll give you a small Easter egg right before we start this. I never wrote that TED Talk down or rehearsed it. You're kidding me. Wow, that's awesome. Nope. You're a natural. Nope. <laughs> no, I, I I I had to rehearse. I had to do it a couple times during the rehearsals, like the structured rehearsals for this for the TED organization. Uh-huh. But for the couple weeks before the speech, I didn't do I, I didn't do the normal thing where everybody goes over their speech over and over again. I I, I just yeah. I have the benefit of just being at being my life. So well, and it, and it came from a, yeah, and it came from the heart. That was that was very obvious. It, it really it really didn't. That's why I when I reached out to you, I didn't know because. I mean, you have 18 million views on that bad boy, and uh, I thought, 15 million, 15 huh? million. I don't, I don't okay. only only 15. I don't want to, I don't want to go over too far yet. Right. <laughs> well, only 15 million. Thank, thank you for correcting me. Well, and when I reached out, I thought, ah, this is a long shot. You literally responded in five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I believe well, the luck, I'm, man. <laughs> I'm just a regular guy. I work full time at a gas station. Like I, I just, I do all of my activism and stuff on as, as just because it's my journey. It's what I, it's what I think I need to do. Well, speaking of journey, let's, why don't we get into that? Because that was what, that's what was fascinating. Um, and I know, I know from just from the talk and from reading about it, it was a dark place. Um, and yeah. just wondering if you wouldn't mind taking the audience through that. When I say dark, it was dark, man. So yeah, yeah, it's good. It gets intense. So my 
the very first memory I ever have in my life is me laying on my bloody mom's body, looking up at my father while he has a tire iron in his hand while I'm screaming, you just killed my mom. Wait, what? She wasn't dead. She wasn't dead. But that would, that's, that's where she was beaten bloody and unconscious. Oh. And that's literally zero for me. That's, that's the start of my life. Dang. Oh. And so the, the first five years of my life were like living in Stephen King, like a Stephen King horror movie. Um, my birth father was the most violent and aggressive man I've ever met. The, the, every form of abuse you could possibly imagine right directly in front of me and to me and to my brother and every, everything around. It was w- stories that will make your blood curdle. And that, then once my mom left him, got with my stepdad, it was more like Scarface. It, lots and lots of crack cocaine, lots of crime. Um, we would... Uh, there was a lot of things in my and like physical objects because they would steal delivery trucks that would go to would go to toy stores and stuff. Like my my stepdad would just rob the truck, and so I would end up having at, at like six seven years old. I'd have for Christmas I'd get every Thundercats toy or every He Man figure, but then three weeks later I'd have someone bust in the room at four o'clock in the morning, throw a duffel bag at me, say we have five minutes to grab all your stuff, get out of here. And I would only grab comic books. Com- comic books were the one thing that were like mine. Okay, so that that's the early, early formative years, and that happened. That that kind of scene happened multiple, multiple times. That was that, that wasn't a singular incident. That was a lot of that. Um, I went to like thirty or forty different schools. I never went to a school longer than four or five months. We I constantly moved, and every new school I was at, I was bullied. I, I was I was fat. I was smelly. I didn't have much clean clothes. I was everybody around me in my home life was toxic and angry and 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 lied to everybody. So that's how I was modeling. I was very toxic and aggressive myself. And I it it but I was also inward. I was really sensitive and and I I loved poetry and I loved reading and I loved history and science and but that kind of stuff was not. It wasn't only not encouraged, but it was kind of like attacked by my world. Like that was, that was not, we had to survive and, and and that stuff didn't help you survive. So that, that, that stuff was just, that was stuff. I don't know what, is there a language barrier on this podcast? I don't want want to make sure. No, no, you're fine. Okay. That, that was, that was the kind of stuff that was just pushed off the side. Like that's bullshit. You can't do, you can't do that. And so as I'm growing older, I, I, internalize that and I start I, I describe it like I'm I wear the darkness like a shield like I started to wrap it around me like like I, I'll become the, the the fat smelly one and I'll become the toxic one and it'll keep everybody away it's like a defensive measure and it even keeps some of my family away that's coming to hurt me like the 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 the, the more disgusting I can get the more people will actually see me in a way oh. because I, I knew that I was the dark I was the bad one and so if I kept on being toxic, everybody would see who I was. Because if you, if you came to me at that time and told me, you know, you're a good kid, you must be lying. You don't know who I am. If you, if you knew who I was, you'd see that I was actually bad. And then, and that's, this is all before 12 years old. Dang. This is, this is, this is the early age. And then as I'm getting into my teen years, 12, 13, the, the chaotic violence at home, just got really bad like 
watching people dig through the carpet looking for crack rock and uh, stabbing people in the gut with doorknobs. Like if, if that's a weird thing to say, but if you ever take apart the doorknob and you see the gears on the inside of it, that's yeah. a bad thing to use as a weapon. Ugh. And I, that, that kind of thing was kind of just everywhere. My, I, I would, there were times when in my teen years where I would come in from school or, or, or cause I would, my, we would, my parents lied a lot. So we always were enrolled in school. So we didn't have truancy officers and we always had a place, but then we get evicted and we get another place. Then we get evicted. Like it was, so my, my stepdad was a very accomplished liar. <clears throat> there were times in my high school years or teen years, not high school. Didn't we have high school years um, that were, I would come in the house. Nobody would notice I was there. This is an actual story that happened. Direct story. I, I came in the house. Nobody knew I was there. I walked to my bedroom. I heard rumbling outside my bedroom door. I opened the door, see my stepdad with my mom up against the wall, hands around her throat. She's a couple feet up off the wall. He's choking her. I grab him. Uh, I am large as a teen and aggressive and angry. And so I grab him, slam him into the microwave, break the microwave, slam him into the fridge, break the door off the fridge, slam him into the back wall of the house, push him into the back wall, almost push him through the wall of the garage. While I'm doing that, my mom's attacking me. What, what, she's, what? she's yeah yeah as soon as she got dropped and i started attacking my stepdad my mom starts attacking me and hitting me in the back of the head plates and stuff i drop my stepdad turn around walk to my bedroom close the door sit down turn on the tv oh my gosh just go go back to my normal day and let them deal with their chaos yeah. and so i i just couldn't couldn't deal with that at home yeah. anymore and so i ended up being homeless I came home was about 13, 14 years old and I was bouncing from friends' houses and sleeping in fields and, and I, I, I was just kind of surviving at that point. I, I didn't really have friends, I, but I had what I called disaster groupies, people that wanted to hang out around me and kind of live vicariously through my darkness. Like they didn't really have anything like me around and they wanted to see it. I was kind of like a, like a dark unicorn thing. Like they could just see one, they just wanted to see how far they could push me out, see how far I would go. Yeah. And looking back, it was a bunch of depressed kids trying to navigate depression without any adult supervision. But that's what it was. It was, it was dark. And while we were sitting around talking about, instead of talking and hanging out with your friends, talking about sports, talking about girls, talking about movies, we would talk about killing people. Uh. Uh, we would talk about if I were going to kill 10 people, what would you do? If, if you were going to shoot up a school, what would you do? And it was kind of the fantasy football of the group. Wow. And that ended up, I grew, as I grew older, that chaos at home didn't stop. About 15 years old, I started cutting myself. I started cutting myself really bad. And um, that, I described my life back then like I was living in a tsunami of pain, just this big sloshing, like, like, throwing back and forth like I didn't really have any control over it like if you've ever been to a concert there's a, a heavy metal concert in particular there's a uh, area I call the the sardine cam okay where it's like um, in front of the mosh pit mm -hmm. before the stage where everybody's shoved up in the yep, front yep. and you can't really move at all okay <laughs> in that when I would go to shows in that spot I would used to be able to pick up my feet up off the ground and let the crowd just move you around like yeah. you just stand straight up and just literally pick your feet totally off the ground and float 
in the crowd and let the crowd just move you. And that's kind of a good metaphor for how my life was at that point. Like I was getting moved by a very violent crowd, just getting shoved and pushed around. Mm. And so the chaos at home just continued and got worse. And I got, my toxicity kept on getting worse and my cutting got really bad. And I ended up in my, my friend's shed. I had one actual friend, his name is Mike. And he lived in an opposite end of the block that I did one one time. And we bonded over comic books and deep conversation. So we would sit and talk about philosophy and history and politics and music. and Like that's where the deep thoughts were in my world. And we just completely got hooked with that. And he lived the opposite life that I did. He had a very stable family, very loving, very caring, uh, nice, well-fed, well-clothed, like all that good, normal, happy, healthy family. And his parents still live in that house today. Like it's really nice, very caring. I, I, in fact, I, his his mom is as close to a mom as I got. Like that, that's my mom. Yeah. Um. And so, we he, I, I, early on, I would be able to sleep at his house for a while. And as I was living at home, like I would go escape the chaos at home, go hang out at his house when we, when we were in Denver, because we moved from Denver to Oregon in in between all the time. Mm-hmm. And, but his house was like home base. He never moved. So I memorized his phone number. He never moved. And so at, coming up to about 15 years old, 16 years old, I am – at this point, his parents wouldn't let me sleep in the house anymore because I was dirty and smelly and I was getting really toxic. Mm-hmm. And I was getting really bad. And I was in his tool shed. And he had been sleep, sneaking me out food for the last couple of days. And while I'm in his shed – that is has it has a, a wood roof but like wood slats so you can see that there's there's boards but there are gaps in the boards so you can mm-hmm. see the uh, stars and rain coming down and stuff in the middle of the night and i'm in a big gray puffy recliner chair like a lazy boy yeah. and it's been it's been but it's been in storage for a while so it's dirty and got cobwebs and stuff on it and so i'm sitting in the chair and i'm cutting myself so bad that there's like a pool of blood forming under mm. on the ground there. yeah and I think if I, if I don't do something, I'm going to die. If I don't get myself some help, I'm going to die. And so I, the next morning, I, as, soon as, as soon as the sun rises, I go and knock on my friend's back door and get – I borrow a phone book and some bus fare from his mom. And I called social services on myself. Mm. And they set an appointment for later that afternoon. And when I got there, it was like 3 or 4 in the afternoon – the they didn't just call me they brought my mom in too and we all sat around a table with a bunch of therapists and they asked so what's your problem and so i produced a bloody razor blade like a square box cutter yeah and i throw throw it on the table and i say that's my problem and i show on my arm i'm like i'm i feel like i'm at nothing i feel like i'm at the bottom i feel like I'm, i'm just completely worthless and my mom who mind you is the most practiced liar i've ever known she got them to believe that I was just making it all up, that I was just doing it for attention. And they sent me home with her. And we got a couple blocks away from the social services place. And she turned to me and she mean look in her eyes. She said, next time you should do a better job and I'll buy you the razor blades. And I was like, all right, cool. You think I'm a monster? I'm going to be a monster now. And I kind of like that darkness that I was wearing as a shield, I just dove headlong into it. Like I'll, I'm, I went through – what I call a nine month period of what I call scorched earth mm. where I went through burning down every positive relationship I had 
where if you thought that I was good, I was going to prove that you're wrong. Uh, and so I was very, very toxic, very, very nasty, very personally toxic. Like I'd find out what offended you and do that. And I, during that time, I also went into every family member I possibly could. I would snuck into their houses or, or smooth my way in, like charm my way into their houses for a bit. Got into their photo albums and gathered every picture of me before 15 years old and burned them. Wow. Stacked them all in a pile and burned them. Tried to annihilate my own history. And so after about nine months of that, I had successfully burned every bridge that I had. I was now sitting in the field again behind Casa Bonita. If you ever watched the the show South Park, they did a whole episode on Casa Bonita. (laughs) It's that that exact restaurant that they're talking about that South Park guys actually just bought. I was behind that restaurant. That's where, no this, way. that's where this happened. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm in the field behind Casa Benita. And I had been there for a long time. But within the last couple of weeks before that, I hadn't taken my shoes off in weeks, but I also wasn't wearing socks. So my feet were literally rotting off my body. I was where, surviving on free samples from the grocery store that I could steal and stealing food. And I was I had I had nothing. I had no supports. I had even thought I had ruined my relationship with Mike. I just had wasn't at the bottom. I'm like, okay, so I need to get help. I'm going to try one more time. If, if the last time I warned him I was coming and that, that was bad. That was the most toxic thing that ever happened to me. So I'm not going to warn him this time. Mm-hmm. And across the street from my high school, there was a building that said mental health. And I didn't really know anything else about it. I just knew the science said mental health. And I'm going to go try to get myself help one last time. And so I go up there cold, like five, six in the afternoon, right before they close. And they had, I spoke to a young lady and she was like early twenties. And I don't really remember much about that conversation because all I really remember is the end of it. When she told me, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. I can't help you. Wait, what? Really? And I walked out of that door and my brain shattered right there at that spot. My brain broke. I felt it like a mirror, like it just splintered. And I found out what was underneath that tsunami. Under, under, when you go, when you go all the way down to the bottom, it gets really quiet and it gets really still because there's not anything left to lose. There's nothing left to care about. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to cut off my arm? I'm going to die. You know, I'm going to hit by a car? Okay, cool. I'm going to go to jail? They're going to feed me. Like, I don't have any more down. There is, there isn't any more bottom. <clears throat> and so in that spot, all the plans crystallized. I knew right, right there, right on that, right in that doorstep, what I was going to do. Like everything just snapped into focus. That I, all the plans from talking with those disaster group friends, I knew that I was either going to go into the mall food court or my school food court. I already mapped out the plans, mapped out the routes. I knew where to get a gun because there were gangbangers around. This was mid nineties. So not, not only were there gangs everywhere, but this is pre metal detectors in schools. So they would bring guns and flash them in the school all the time. And they knew that I wasn't a narc. I was living in the field. Like they, I was, I was not, I'm not a cop. Like yeah. you can tell. Yeah. And so I, but they knew me, like they had sold drugs to my family and I wasn't, I'm, I wasn't an asshole to them. So I, I like, they were friendly with me. We, we got along just fine. Yeah. And um, so I went up to him like, Hey, can you get me a gun? Hopefully one that shoots a lot of bullets. And the guy's like, yeah, sure. Give me an ounce of weed. And that was the easiest part of all. I went to my mom's house, my friend, brother's friend sleeping on the floor, grabbed an ounce out of his pocket and took it. 
mind you, this is mid nineties. So that the people listening, like the scale is different. Like these, these <laughs> days, legal marijuana is like 60 bucks an ounce. This was like 300 something dollars back in the nineties. This is a, this is a big thing back then. Mm-hmm. And so I, I took it to him. Like, here you go. And he's like, all right, man, give me, give me three days. I'll get that for you. I'm like, all right, cool. So I was waiting. So the instant I got the gun from him, I was going to either go to my school or go to the mall. And the only difference was going to be the time of day. And during that three days, I didn't think I was doing it then, but looking back, I think I was saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. I was going and closing off relationships in a much more positive way, like not, not being toxic. I wasn't being aggressive. I was just giving away things and I was giving away my comic books and I was just, I was closing off relationships mm-hmm. and I went to Mike's house and I, he opened the door and he saw me and he didn't know what I had planned. He still didn't know what I had planned until I came up with my story a couple years ago. But he knew the hell I was living in. He had seen, I was, it was, his house was the one I was running to when, and when I left the hell that I was at. Like he saw the pain that I was going through and the cuts on my arm all the time. And like he saw the, exactly what, the, what hell I was living in. And he brought me in and he kept on telling me, dude, you're a good kid in a shit world. And he sat me down and he, we watched a movie and we had a meal and it wasn't, it wasn't just hanging out with a friend. It was, that's not what saved me. What saved me is that he reminded me about the granular tiny bits of humanity that I didn't have. Like, Oh, I can like something. Mm -hmm. I can enjoy food. Like, like just, you hear about Maslow's hierarchy of needs where you got to have the base survival. I had fallen off the cliff. And he was just that, just that bottom level of, of the, I can exist. And it, it was, it was the most cathartic thing. It like splashed with cold water on my face. Like, it like pushed the clock back on my humanity. Like, like the, the tide of destruction had pushed forward where I was this walking ball of pain and destruction. And he like saw me as a person and mm-hmm. it, I, I didn't feel human. I felt absolutely inhuman. And he, it like pushed the tide back, you know? And so I, after that, once the crisis incident was over, it was more depression. I became more introverted and actually became more kind of ashamed of what I had planned. And, but the depression since, since that tide of destruction had get pushed back, like the, 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 the crazy crashing in the, in the head was able to lessen, you know, like that kind of, yeah. I was able to step back off the ledge. And, but, but, I w- it wasn't like a light switch happened, you know, like it wasn't like, ding, everything's better. You know, like uh, I, I, the, the living situation wasn't really different. The pain at home wasn't different. My inwards focus changed and I was able to look more deeply in myself. And then, but Mike, Mike and my own efforts, I, I, I moved out to Oregon for a summer and then came back. Cause that was still bad. Cause I lived with some family out there and that wasn't good either. But just they're able to shift the, the frame. You know, like just not be where you are and move slightly was enough to, to, to help me get moving in a way. And so, and Mike's help too. When I got back from Oregon, Mike helped me with the place to stay and like, like, yeah, at least and my brother, I was able to stay with like, again, shift the frame slightly, yeah. but the, the real hooks of the toxic family and the toxic self-image and all of that was still there and was still eating away at me. 
And so fast forward now to my 19th birthday. This That all happened around 16, early 17. Now, now I'm coming up to my 19th birthday. Night of my 19th birthday, I was planning on committing suicide. I was planning on killing myself by drug overdose. I had stolen a gigantic bag of drugs from my mom, big old bag of cocaine, whole bottles of pills, because she was a walking medicine cabinet. And I got a whole bunch of LSD. And I was planning on going to that field behind Casa Benita the night of my 19th birthday and taking all those drugs and killing myself and having that be it. And so the day of my 19th birthday, I was acting like nothing happened, like on purpose, acting like nothing was wrong, try, trying to be as normal as possible and trying to just have a good last day. And so I went to Mike's house. And Mike is a very social guy. Okay, Mike's, Mike's a very friendly dude. He has a friend group, friend group of his own. And one of his friends is named Amber. Okay. Amber is, was always really nice to me. She wasn't ever unfriendly to me, but she was definitely his friend, you know, like that, that's his contact. So we, yeah, but we would go over to Amber's house and watch a movie, listen to music, do whatever. Like she's very cool. Nice to hang out with. And so I, he's, I go over to their, his house that day. And he's like, all right, dude, we're going to kick it at Amber's today. Um, and I'm like, okay, cool. I'm thinking that's a really good last day. You know, I'll go spend it with two really nice people that, that like me. Then I get there and that wasn't it at all. It was actually a surprise birthday party for me. No way! And oh, I walk into that's... a group of friends that were saying happy birthday and they love me and they baked me a blueberry peach pie. And I walked to the bathroom and dropped all the drugs in my t- in the toilet and flushed it. And that was the last time I ever tried to kill myself. That is freaking awesome. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. I mean, unbelievable. And, and last month, me and Amber went and saw a concert together. <laughs> it's so awesome. I'm, I'm just... Yeah, you know, I, I'm not going to cry, but I mean, that's that that is very <laughs> incredibly emotional because you painted such a bleak, bleak picture about everything. There's one thing that you said that um, in the podcast, and that was that when you're told that you're worthless enough that you'll, you'll believe it. And yet yes. here is this ridiculous darkness that you went through. And <laughs> I when you said the birthday party, I, I literally, I wanted to hop out of my chair. And go, oh, heck yes. <laughs> because yeah. And the- there's, and they're still both my best friends to this day. And it's that, that now today I'm a happy father of four and family man. And I have a beautiful wife and lovely. Uh, my, I, I am assistant manager at a gas station, but I, I, I make good money working at a gas station. And it's just a nice, happy life. And I get to, and then a couple of years ago, I came out with my story, and now I get to help other people find a way out of the darkness by talking. You know what? About who what really hits wow. me about your story is there's there's those two main turning points that could have gone really, really bad in your life, and the thing that changed them wasn't anything crazy. It wasn't no. like a massive intervention. It wasn't anything that anybody couldn't do. You know, and yeah. in fact. In fact, those kinds, it's important to note that, that there's a, um, when I talk about how it wasn't one of those overbearing acts of kindness that, it, that like people can get you into a program and people can get you into, I got the system I can get you and I can, I have this 12 step, I have this, this doctor, those kinds of things. When you're in that dark spot, people looked at me like I was a threat or a project. Yes. I yes. wasn't a person. Yes. That I, I, I was either to be feared or to be fixed. I, I, that was it. That was, those are the only two things for me. I was broken either way. And, and that isn't a person. The, The, the thing, the thing that saved me with Mike the most 
was that he did live in a very different social stratus than mine. He went to art college. He, he, he like his parents had multiple cars and owned a giant four-story house. And like, it's very different social stratus, but never once, never once in our years and years of conversation, has he ever looked at me as anything but an equal? Like just that when he, when we talked, when we would sit and talk and have those deep discussions about philosophy and politics, he saw the brain. He didn't see the shell, you know, like that, that's the part that chokes me up about it. Even to this day is that he it's, it's able to see the person inside and not hear only the language of depression that I'm screaming out at the time. Like, because that, all of that shell was my screaming of depression. This, this is my pain. And I'm going to, I want someone to see it, please see it. And uh, people at the time, they, they either ran away from it or thought they could fix it. But Mike instead saw, dude, that's a guy screaming. Holy crap. That's, and, and, and that, that was it. That was the, that's the thing that saved me. Mike and Amber both saw me like they, they both. Even even Amber to this day, they see me as a person. They don't they don't see me as Aaron the project, Aaron the Aaron the guy that we had to help. Yep. Like I, I wasn't I wasn't some charity case. Yeah. I was a person in pain who deserved respect. They they treated you like a person, saw. man. That's yeah. it. It, it like is amazing evil. how many often we get into this project mentality and think we could put them through a program and all that that garbage there when all it is is that connection as a human. And uh-huh. I've got to go down to Gary because I know I, I'm 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 taking copious notes over here. <laughs> Gary, I gotta I gotta I gotta ask you, man, because I know there are some things. If we could be a little vulnerable here, you went through some of the things, not not to that extent by any means, but there's a lot of stuff. That well, we uh, so so about. so I I have to stop you there, Maurice, because I yeah. I want to make a point. Yeah. Comparative pain, comparative pain is not it's not it's not a it's not a race and it's not a contest. Yep. And his pain is just as valid as mine and his, his abuse or whatever he yeah. went through would be just as valid as mine and just as impactful on his own existence as mine was on mine. Similar to any good influences would be similarly just as impactful. I, I'm Comparative pain can be a very big issue when it comes to people looking at this. They, they think that, oh, you're a unicorn. You went through all this stuff. But in <laughs> reality, there's millions of people like me. They just don't want to talk about it. You are a freaking stud, man. No, you're, you're absolutely was, right. And man, my goodness, that was that was one of the best teaching moments I have ever had, right there. Man, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's important because it, it doesn't make anyone else's experience more or less. It, yes. it, it is yeah. it is what it is. Um, the thing that I I kind of. That, that hit me really hard about this whole story is, and I don't know why, but I've always kind of been an empath a little bit and look out for those that kind of the underdog and that yeah. type of thing. And you, you said something that, that resonated with me in one of your talks was that we need to find those, we need to love those who deserve it the least. Mm. Yeah. The, the ones that we feel deserve it the least. I think yes. that that's an important moment too. The, 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 and that's my main, that's, if that's the one message I can get across to anybody, that's the big one. Give love to the ones that you feel deserve it the least because they need it the most. And it helps you just as much as it helps them. That, that it's love is not a one way street. Mm-hmm. And, and it's that, that person that you see in that dark, that one you see that you look at and you're like, Oh, that, that person is different than me. 
we we other so much in our world right now. Everybody, it's like like xenophobia de, de rigueur. Like everybody just has like we we want to we want to sectionalize and separate everybody away from us and make our own little bubble more strong. Yeah. When in reality, there isn't any difference. There isn't any difference in the pain that I was feeling in my darkest time when I was about to shoot up a school and the pain that a model feels when she's in a car throwing up in a cup before a photo shoot. Mm. There's no difference in that pain. Well, that that what, looks like two species, but at the bottom, it's just self-immolation. I'm no, I don't feel like I'm good enough and I'm going to burn up my world to fit it. Wow. When we were talking about you know trying to get someone into a program or anything like that, that almost shows some level of caring. And I think probably the bigger issue is the flip side of that coin. I think this is something that you you showed us very, very well. And I think that we've all seen in our lives is that's actually shows some sort of, of goodness. The part that I think is super dangerous, especially for youth, is that if you are different, if you're depressed, if you are the smelly kid, if you're the, whatever you wanna say, even if you're the best mm -hmm. looking girl in school, there's people actively out trying to bring you down and destroy yeah. you mm -hmm. or see well, you the, as a threat. And the biggest one is usually yourself. The, oh, the, the biggest key, in my opinion, yeah. is to make sure that when that person is sitting there, tell, when I'm when you're sitting there telling yourself you're worthless and you believe it, the rest of the world needs to try to do their best to make sure they don't tell you that you're right. Yeah, it makes sense. That, that when when that kid who hates himself and like let's take let's take it for an instance the Uvalde shooter okay the kid the kid who shot up all those guys in Uvalde and that is the one that's recently the most similar to my own story in my opinion mm. where it appears and again I don't have full details and I'm not an outsider so take it take it if I'm if I'm wrong on details so anybody take it for a grain of salt but from what it appears it appears that he had a very oppressive and toxic early couple years and that that metastasized to him becoming a toxic kid early on a very toxic youth which then caused him to be bullied which then caused him to then react with being a better bully and refine his toxicity and as that grew and he as he got older the 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 language of pain that he was spe speaking got louder and louder and had more more words in it and when before he got there to the school, a couple weeks before, he ended up showing up at his own school with with uh, slice marks all over his cheeks. Oh. He cut his face completely up. That to me is the most visible sign of I'm hurting me. Someone see it. Oh. And and it's none of this is an excuse. None of this is to excuse any of this. None, none of it's it's not, it's just to look at the path that is the dark path that we don't like to look at. We like to look at, we can, we look at what happened after the fact and we look at what happens to, to recover after the shooting and, and, and try to do like a triage and see like, well, this could have been the path that we go down, mm -hmm. but it's really hard to examine the actual path itself. People yeah. recoil from that in the same way you recoil from a spider in your bedroom. Like it's just, you don't want to look at it. Yeah. And I think the more light we shine on it, the less it's going to hurt us because the, 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 the more, knowledge really is power. The more you know something, the less it's going to hurt. You. Yeah. The more the more you have examined it, this, if it goes, that goes for information and, and emotions. The more you've examined them, the less they're going to be painful. Yeah. The, the, the thing that makes me so sad about your, your situation as well as that other shooter's situation is you have someone that has a, vis, a very outward sign of that they're hurting whether you know cutting your face or cutting your arm 
And yet mm-hmm. so many times the response from other people is, is, see, I told you this guy's no good. I told you that he's a threat. I told you yeah. that, you know, it's like this self-fulfilling prophecy of, yeah. well, you know, so it has an absolutely unintended consequence. You know what I mean? And I, I, and I uh, think, and from what I've seen, the older up we get, the, old, the older we get, the worse that becomes. Mm-hmm. Adults, children these days, especially the kids in schools, they speak these languages of depression fluently. Like they know the person much in their better. class, much better. They know the kids in their class that are the threats. They know the kids in their class that are on the edge. They know the ones that are that are, that are the creepy ones that everybody really needs to be paying attention to. Like yeah. they know this stuff because they speak it all the time. They, they talk it all the time and they're fully aware. The adults in the room have a tendency to want to indemnify themselves and want to make themselves better than the pro and just think that they're fixing something. Right. Like the best example of that is, is hardening the schools by doing stuff like, like, um, restricting access points to one door, which to me is just the stupidest thing ever. Like that to me doesn't make any sense. It, it just, let's take away, and this is gonna sound really crass. Let's take away all morality for just a minute. Let's just look at this like a tactical attack, okay? If you're attacking somewhere and they only have one door where people can come in and out, why would you even bother going in? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why not just make them come out? Like that to me, none of this logic that we would use in other settings. We would use that kind of logic if it was in Iraq. We would use that kind of logic if we're fighting somebody on the battlefield. But we won't use that kind of logic when it comes to dealing with our own stuff because we want to make it feel like we're going to fix something. So we're going to harden the targets. We're going to put bars on all the doors and we're going to put all in all this stuff that is not, it's all a band-aid to cover the fact that we don't want to look at that kid in pain and acknowledge that he's in pain. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to be, we don't, and because the hardest thing to do is acknowledge that that kid in pain was a lot like me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, and I honestly think the biggest enemy that we're fighting against, there's two of them are neglectful parents mm. who, which are not seeing these, these warning signs or even doing like mine were and trying to, to obfuscate and destroy any attempt for help from those warning signs. Because mm. as we're moving past the house, one of the big, it was either, getting evicted, social worker coming, cop coming to get someone arrested, like all these, the, the authorities coming to intervene. If, if I was at a school and some teacher saw that I was in school, one time this happened, I was in school, teacher saw that I was dirty and smelly. So she all of a sudden had a small fundraiser thing of her own where she came to school and gave me like a backpack with a bunch of clothes and school utensils and stuff, okay? Like a really nice teacher. I hadn't barely just met her but she gave me all of this cool stuff. I only knew her for like two weeks. Mm, man. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, we were gone. That, yeah. that was it. Uh, that, that, because that kind of attention means that then they're going to investigate why that kid's not clothed. Yeah. If they investigate why that kid's not clothed, then they're going to find the crack. You know, find the crack, then they're going to go to jail. If they go to jail and everything's blown up. And from my perspective as a kid, if I try, if I say the wrong thing to that therapist and then my mom might end up going to jail. And even though I'm living in hell, that hell's all I have. Uh, that hell's all the world I have. And I'm taught, we're taught early on in that, and this is a common thing for kids in this kind of setting. You're taught early on to protect the family unit. Yeah. That, that you have to keep everybody safe. And to keep everybody safe, you got to keep the shit to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how that generational ball of denying and, and we don't talk about this in public and, and we don't talk about the pedophile uncles. We, and that kind of stuff rolls downhill to and it just smashes into that kid on the bottom Uh, so aaron from your from your perspective how do we reach the individual how do we start to make a difference how do people 
how do you, I mean, this sounds like such a basic so in, question. In a, how do we start treating a, people like people? Well, it's a, it's a hard, it, that's, that's in a very oblique question, but I'll give you a very <laughs> tangible answer. Okay. I'll give you a very tangible answer sure. because there's, there's an actual rhetorical method that we can use in conversation to help drop those barriers that make people turn into white noise. All right. So let's say you're a person who's seeking out for help, even if that help is just from a friend. Okay. And you reach out for help and the person gives you the, the answer where I'm, I'm going to give you, I have this project I'm going to get you into, or I have this, this, here's a journal we need to get you to put in even a therapeutic setting. So you say you go to a therapist. Okay. So we, we, first we need to get you under a journal. Then we're going to get you under this medicine. And then we're going to sit there and, and go through this 12 steps and we're going to do everything. And I have this whole checklist that I'm going to be checking on. Mm -hmm. And the instant that happens over yeah. done yeah. white noise, you, you, you might as well just show me a static screen. Yeah. Okay. The way to stop that is small breaks of protocol, tiny breaks of protocol, not, not anything that's actually going to impact the actual data, not anything that's going to impact the actual substance of the, of the machinery. But, oh, I like that band. Oh, yeah, you only saw that yeah. movie the other yeah. day? Yes. I, I watched that yes. movie too. Small bits of humanity. Make a tiny mistake. Make a, make a tiny mistake that people would never see. Burp in public. So, like, do, do a little tiny thing to remind the other person on the other side of the, of the conversation that I'm a human with flaws. Yeah. And that I'm doing this as an intellectual action, not that you're a part of my work. Yeah. If you're, a, if you're an element of my work, you're done. That, that, that you're just a checklist. Oh, but if you engage goodness. on me, if you engage and, and you spend that five, five minutes talking about a band that you like, like you find out, oh, you like Nine Inch Nails? I like Nine Inch Nails. Let's talk about that. You like that old music? Let's just, let's jam out to this for a bit. Then after that, you get the same checklist. You get the same check, you get the same, um, same uh, 12 steps. You get the same procedures, but it gets absorbed because mm -hmm. it's coming from a human. Yep. And it's yep. not coming from someone who saw me as a checklist. I'm going to I'm going to add something to that too that you you had mentioned and this this hit me particularly hard and that was instead of looking at, at them as a threat, look at them like they might be a friend, and then mm -hmm. then it's it all of a sudden you you chuck the checklist right you chuck those things yeah. because you're 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 bonding at a level that uh, you want to normalize you, you want to normalize the equation because you're up here. Okay, you're, yep. you're up here. You're, you're trying to do your good. You're dealing with someone who's like this. Yes. All right. Not, not only down, but tilted down. All right. So mm -hmm. what you want to do in that is you want to normalize that equation. And mm -hmm. you don't want to normalize it by drinking yourself down. Doing that just makes everybody dark. All right. You mm -hmm. want to normalize it by bringing them up. And how do you do that? How do you bring somebody up? By acknowledging the person that's there. Not, not the shell that they're putting up, not the language that they're screaming at you. Uh, we're all, when I keep on saying that, the, I, th I think that we're all taught a language of depression early on. We're all taught how to speak our own, our own emotions. And as, that, as we grow older, that vocabulary will grow. Yeah. And if you're taught early on that the language you should speak is violence and anger and destruction, then as you grow, you're going to learn more languages of that. You're going to learn more words of violence and destruction. And yeah. if you're taught the, the language of depression is self self destruction and, and eating disorders, and you're not good enough inside, then yeah. as you grow older, that's going to get that big too. And we have to teach different emotional vocabularies yeah. that we can, we're able to speak about emotions in a positive light, even dark emotions in a positive light. That that, that having these bad feelings are you can move through it. Yeah. And that kid on the in the dark can really be a friend because that kid in the dark was you. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the, the most powerful thing that I've ever had in my whole, I'm, I've been doing this now almost five years. 
Mm-hmm. And, and from my journey, I came out in February 2018 with my story. And so, so about four and a half years now. And so in that time, I have the most profound thing that I've noticed is there isn't any difference in any of our pain. There isn't any difference in it. Mm-hmm. The, the, the pain in the kid in Pakistan who can't tell me the abuse because he got, he, they would, his bullies would kill him. And the pain and the CEO of Archie Comics who talks to me about all of her own feelings. And then the pain of the, the homeless kid in, in Washington and the pain of the gangbanger in, in South Central. And all of that, it's all just, if you take that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, okay, that pyramid that we're all familiar with, it all, it all goes up to the top. Flip that upside down. Yep. Flip that pyramid completely upside down and look at it like an upside down triangle. That bottom triangle is the pain that I'm talking about, that pain and self-immolation. That top plane is all the expressions that we all have of that plane, mm. of that pain. Okay. And, and that's where we can flip it back to the other side and reestablish that you can, ha- you can do things like you can like stuff. You are a good person. It is just a Tuesday. It's not a disaster. Today is not the day of your, de- today is not the day of your destruction. Today's Tuesday. Tomorrow's going to be Wednesday and the sun's still going to rise. Yeah. And and if we, we have I tell my own children that the only constant in life is change. Yep. The only thing that's absolutely certain is that tomorrow is going to be different than today. It might not be better, it might not be worse, but it is going to be different. Yeah. And and you have choice you have a choice with that. You can either adapt with those changes and move with those changes like the water, or you can be like the rocks on the beach and get worn down with the waves and turn into pebbles. Yeah. And you have a choice with that because all we really are is change. I am not the same person that I was five years ago. I'm yeah. not the same person that I was five minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I got to ask you, you, you brought up Mike and Amber and uh-huh. I know that was a pivotal <laughs> friendship. Both of those are pivotal friendships. Did they realize the impact that they had on you at the time? If you were to ask Mike, even now, what did you do that saved Aaron? He'd say, I just did what a friend does. That's how, that, how cool he, is that? That's, that's all he says. Like I, he, and he doesn't like. That's why Mike isn't on any of my stuff. He's not. He's a curmudgeon. He's not a fan of being on camera. <laughs> he's just. He is. He is not a fan of public attention and all that. Like he was at my TED talk, but he was in the back row. Like he does not <laughs> not want to be seen. Um, but he is still. He's uncle to my kids. Like just the nicest. He. he he would hate when I would say he's nice publicly. He would hate that. But he's the <laughs> nicest guy in the world. <laughs> okay. Well, so you have felt- that's really all they would do. They all they all just say that's that's what they would both would say is that I just did what a friend would do. Mike, I think, uh, had more of a normalized relationship with him than Amber did. I think Amber had more of that. This is more of a crisis spot kind of. Thing. Yeah. But even then, she didn't know. She didn't know that what I did at that birthday party. She didn't know that I was planning on killing myself. That that she had no idea. Wow. And again, didn't have any idea until I came out with my story in 2018. Neither one of them knew my full story. Wow. My my own family did it. So let me. So the way I the way this all happened with me publicly because now's a good time to get into that section. I guess. Um. So 2018, right after Parkland, like yeah. the day after the Parkland massacre in Florida, I was watching the news with my family my wife and my oldest, and we were having this big tearful discussion about how could someone ever do this? How could someone ever get to that point? And they were really crying. 
And then as we're having that talk, I look on the news and I see a lady who a, a, a girl's getting interviewed by a reporter and the reporter, sorry, someone's doing construction like right outside my house. That's all right. Um, <laughs> the, there's a, um, the, the reporter's interviewing the, the kid and saying, so how did that feel? Oh. And the kid like literally just left the school, had blood on him and stuff. Like that to me was the most depersonalizing and dehumanizing yeah, thing. I was no so doubt mad. about it. And so I went to the bathroom and I wrote a Facebook post and sitting on the toilet as we all do. <laughs> and so, which is the other normalizing thing. We all poop. Everybody poops. I say that all the time. I said that to an FBI convention. I told, I told the deputy director of the FBI, everybody poops. Okay. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but so the, I, I go to the bathroom and I write the Facebook post. And as I come out from the bathroom, my, um, my family, my wife and my daughter had read it by that point. My wife only knew like 60% of my history. And my daughter only knew about 20% of my history. And so we had to go through, it was a full on, this is me. And that was a big conversation. And then the next morning, that Facebook post went Facebook viral. And so it was like a couple thousand likes and shares. And so my wife was like, hey, you should send that to... Kyle Clark on Channel 9 News, he might like to see that. They're, they're doing a mental health thing. They, they might like that right now. And So I send it to him, and the very next day, there's a camera crew at my house to film me doing that Facebook post. Oh, no way. And that, that video got 17 million views in a week. <laughs> and I went immediately from a guy sitting on my couch thinking that if anybody ever knew my real story, that they'd hate me. And if anybody ever found out about my life, that it'd be a black mark on me. Mm-hmm. to getting thousands and thousands of messages from all over the planet, literally all over, all over the planet, every country I could name. And it wasn't just, hey, that's a cool story, but it's, hey, that's a cool story, and here's all the pain that ever happened to me. Wow. And here's all of my stuff. And so I got diaries from thousands of people. Wow. And that's when I started the Facebook group called You Are Not Alone. Yes. And it's all one word called You Are Not Alone. And that, that started as how do I handle all of this coming at me? Where, where does this all go? Cause mm-hmm. this is all important. Like none of this is not important. Someone's sharing their deepest pain with me that they can't talk about that. That deserves respect and importance. That's, that's not a small thing. Yeah. And so I made this group to kind of like funnel that yeah. at first and then it quickly got filled with not only people looking for and looking for help in pain, but also therapists and doctors and professionals and professors and people who have lots and lots of degrees and PhDs behind their name, but in their personal life. So mm-hmm. they could give responses and help on a one-to-one human level. And you don't have the peril of therapy where it can sometimes be like walking into a room full of spikes that are pointed inside. Mm-hmm. where you don't really know what you don't know the edges of your game boards. You don't know what you might say that might set off a trigger that could blow up your world. Yeah. And on this group, it gives that bit of a gray zone, but also allows for professional assistance, professional attention when needed. Mm-hmm. So that if it gets above my pay grade, I'm just a regular guy working at the gas station. <laughs> if it gets above my pay grade to help, I have people that I can push to to help that actually have that in their pay grade that can be that do that competently. 
And if it needs to even go further than that, you can go further than that. And so there's like, it's turned into the self-perpetuating positivity machine. And the group itself has, is my prize achievement in all of this. The group itself has, has helped prevent over 30 suicides. So that's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And, And early on helped prevent a couple school shootings that that was and and has helped multiple people leave white nationalism, which is a fun thing to do too. Um, because then, <laughs> well, those in are the Venn diagram, in the Venn diagram of depression, there's a lot of racism mixed with depression, mixed with self harm. Like that's it's almost a circle. And and those are the only the those are only the ones you can quantify. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there's there's an exponent. There's so many more that are on top of that, that, that you just don't even know the reach and the impact that your story is having on people. But I, one of the final things I just want to say, and I don't know if this is a challenge or a statement or whatever we want to call it, but um, you've, you've kind of reminded me that everyone, and I think we have to be careful when we use words like everyone or all, but I, I truly believe this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with everyone. <laughs> everyone has something interesting, unique, good or in common that we can all use and we can uh, how do you say this i i think we need to find that one thing that can be our reason or an anchor to give someone else love and i'm going to stand by that i'm going to say everyone because i don't care we don't it doesn't have to be a friend it doesn't have to be (laughs) you know what i mean yeah. It could well, be here's someone... the, the, and, and you're right with everyone because the important thing to, to remember is that nobody starts in the pitch black. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nobody, nobody starts in the pitch black. Everybody, the worst of the person that you could possibly imagine, Dahmer. Dahmer didn't start in the pitch black. Mm-hmm. Dahmer started as a kid. Mm-hmm. That Gacy didn't start in the pitch black. Gacy started as a kid. Mm-hmm. Like the these that we we like to put a character in a, in a face on it and not see the whole human yeah. that made that. And there's, while we see the end, there was a beginning. Yeah. And along that way, there was also a path. Yes. Yes. And, and that, that's, it's important to remember that the, 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 the person beside you is just on a different path and yeah. there's, there's a human there. And, and when you see that person as a, as another you're right with everyone. It is everyone. This kind of the stuff that I'm doing breaks those barriers of of religion. It doesn't matter if you're atheist or Christian or Republican or Democrat or it, none of that matters. None of that matters. This is like the one truly bipartisan thing that we all feel that same sense. And I know it because I've had the same cheerful discussions with everyone in those groups. Yeah. I'm very much an out atheist. I, I personally don't even think that souls are real. I think they're a biological process. We can't can't philosophize yet. I'm a weird duck, even among atheists. <laughs> I went and presented. <laughs> I went and presented to a group of Mississippi school nurses, the most devoutly religious kind of audience you can have. They have a prayer breakfast before their school meetings. Okay, yeah. and so I went there, and they ended up being some of my best friends. Yeah. Some of the, we had some of the deepest, most heartfelt discussions and most cool connections. And found such common ground that for some reason, this message that I'm saying of love the ones that you feel deserve it the least seems to be really similar to a message that some guy said a long, long time ago that they wrote a book about. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. There's a little bit of similarities there, (laughs) and it doesn't matter if you believe in a spirit or not. 
Like it just matters if you believe in the message that's there. Mm-hmm. And it was really profound. Yeah, I, I think we just need we need to find a do a better job of finding that anchor, finding that reason or that commonality, as you talk about, that we have with everybody that walks the face of this earth. And I think some people are better at that than others. But man, I I, I want to challenge our listeners, man, as you go throughout your day, you know, look for those that you feel don't deserve the love, and find a find a commonality, find something about that person that you can you can latch onto to to give them love. You know, I, I kind of have this way of kind of envisioning people back in second grade. So if it's somebody that's harsh and brash and I just kind of don't like them from the start, I, I throw them on the second grade playground and it kind of helps me wrap around the idea that they're just a they're just a kid at heart. And they, and like you said, and all of our pain is, is there's that's a commonality in itself. And we all have a certain amount of that. So that can be well, used as an anchor. We all live very individual lives, but we're in a very communal world. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we have a tendency as people to think that we're the main character in our story. Yeah. And reality, it's an ensemble. We're, we're all together on this. That is so and, true. So true. And Aaron, the, one thing that I want to say too is I just love that you made that Facebook post in the, to- on the toilet. Uh, there's no <laughs> doubt about because the fact is, I don't know. I know at that time you didn't think that you would have that profound impact on everybody and there's so many things that happens when we share when we open ourselves up to that being vulnerable like that Mm -hmm. and i want to thank you because it made me think it 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 literally stopped me in my tracks and and made me realize that there's so many things i could do better for those around me and the mindset that that shift of from going as you said looking at as a threat to a a potential friend made all the difference in the world and um i i would hope that that message continues you are not alone your facebook group thank you for doing that too i know that we're going to put a lot of people uh move them toward that but i do want to ask this as as we come to end over here what what are some things just from uh, that you would ask of the, the audience. It's easy for Gary and I to espouse any of this, mm-hmm. but coming from you as the guest and been through all of that, what would your final message to him be? Well, my final message would be to that if you're in that dark, you can make it through it. There is, in fact, a light at the end of the tunnel. If you keep on moving and put one foot in front of the other, you will be moving. It might not feel like it. Even, but even small progress is progress. If you move one inch a day, look back in 10 days, you've moved 10 inches. That's, you've moved. <laughs> that that, they're, that you, you make progress. And if you're looking at someone in that dark, remind, remember that you felt that pain too. And really give love to the ones that you feel deserve it the least. They need it the most. The, the ones that you think in your head are, are, are different, are way more similar than you can ever imagine. And... I think that maybe we can get it through it. I have a lot of hope. I have a lot of hope for the, for the world uh, that we can, the more we talk about this, the more it will be, be, be fixed. So please, the one challenge I could give to you is, especially if you're a man listening to this, talk about it. Talk about your own pain with someone nearby you. Talk about something that went in your life that you don't want to talk about, but talk about it. The more you put shine a light in the dark, the less the dark will hurt you. 